Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Not the Three Stooges, but close. According to one author, they all suffered from a Messiah complex. And it was not just a touch of narcissism or a dash of grandiosity. They were three chronic psychiatric, psychiatric I'm sorry, patients at a hospital in Michigan, all diagnosed with a psychotic delusional disorder, grandiose type. Each one maintained that he was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Each one believed that he was the central figure around whom the world revolved, the three little messiahs. Psychologist Milton Rokeach wrote in The Three Christs of Ypsilante about his att attempts to help these men come to grips with the truth about themselves and learn to be just Leon, Joseph, and Clyde. Rokeach spent two years working with the men, but change came hard. It was as if, if they were not even sure they could bear to live if they were not who they thought they were. They could be very rational in other aspects of life. But as Rokeach put it, they would hold on to messianic delusions even though they are grotesque, ego-defensive distortions of reality. With little to lose, Rokeach decided to try an experiment with them. He put the three men into one small group. For two years, the three del delusional messiahs were assigned adjacent beds, ate every meal together, worked together at the same job, met daily for group discussions, and Rokeach wanted to see if rubbing up against each other these would-be messiahs might diminish their delusion, a kind of messianic 12-step recovery group. The experiment led to some interesting conversations, to say the least. One of the men would claim, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know, Rokeach would ask. God told me. Immediately, one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. <laughs> Aim for the three messiahs, and you end up playing the three stooges, Larry, Moe, and Curly, arguing over their place in the Trinity. And as we read about, read about this, we don't know whether to laugh or cry because these guys were serious. The bitter irony is the very delusion to which they clung so tenaciously is what cut them off from life. To stop being the Messiah sounded terrifying to them. But it would have been their salvation if they could only have tried. If Leon and Joseph and Clyde could have stopped competing to see who gets to be the Messiah, they could have become Leon and Joseph and Clyde. Every once in a while, one of the men would get a glimmer of reality. Leon eventually decided that he wasn't actually married to the Virgin Mary after all. Not that the Messiah was, but he thought he was. She was his sister-in-law, not his wife. Well, little progress they made resulted from their togetherness, but that change was only a glimmer, and the light of reality never shone very bright or lasted very long. Now listen, to maintain the illusion that you are the Messiah, you must shut out any evidence to the contrary. Following me? If you want to be your own God, you have to settle for living in a tiny universe where there is room for only one person, 
your world could grow infinitely bigger if you were only willing to become appropriately small. Becoming appropriately small is not something that most of us do very well. We all have somewhat of a Messiah complex, don't we? We operate much of the time as if we are the be-all and the end-all of everything. We make our schedules according to our agendas and things are copacetic until life throws us a curve. The Lord's brother James reminds us that we are not the ones in charge. Not in the grand scheme of life as a whole, but more specifically, not even in the routine of daily existence. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15 go like this. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or to that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say that it's, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. Now, this issue of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is a highly charged issue in Christendom. From an under-the-sun perspective, it gives us fits. We bristle at the notion that a loving and compassionate God could somehow be connected to the pain, suffering, grief, and tragedies of life we all experience here on planet Earth. In fact, many people more than just bristle at the notion, they flat out reject a relationship with God on the very basis of that assumption that God is sovereign and nothing goes on without His sovereign control. On the flip side, however, people are more than happy to accept blessing, to accept prosperity, health, pleasure, and all the good things that life has to offer as coming from God. Right? It's an interesting controversy. This particular discussion is one which G.K. Chesterton dealt with in a very intriguing way. The English essayist was quite fascinated not only by the problem of pain in the world, but equally by its opposite, the problem of pleasure. You ever think about that? Have you ever thought about that? In a thumbnail sketch of Chesterton's life, author Philip Yancey summarizes the questions that intrigue Chesterton most. For instance, he says, why is sex fun? Reproduction surely does not require pleasure. Some animals simply split in half to reproduce. Aren't you glad you don't do that? <laughs> and even humans use methods of artificial insemination that involve no pleasure whatsoever. Why is eating enjoyable, he wondered. Plants and the lower animals manage to obtain their quota of nutrients without the luxury of taste buds. Now the question he wondered about, why are there colors? Some people get along fine without the ability to detect color. Why complicate vision for all the rest of us? Philip Yancey continues, he says, It struck me after reading my umpteenth book on the problem of pain that I have never seen a single book written on the problem of pleasure. 
Nor have I met a philosopher who goes around shaking his head or her head in perplexity over the question of why we experience pleasure. After his long odyssey, Chesterton returned to faith because only Christianity provided the clues to solve the mystery of pleasure. Chesterton says, I felt in my bones first that this world does not explain itself. Second, I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning and meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in this world, as in a work of art. Third, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects. Fourth, that the proper form of thanks to it is some form of humility and restraint. And last and strangest, there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Where does pleasure come from? After searching alternatives, Chesterton settled on Christianity as the only reasonable explanation for its existence in the world. Moments of pleasure are the remnants washed ashore from a shipwreck, he said. Bits of paradise extended through time. And we must hold these relics lightly and use them with gratitude and restraint, never seizing them as entitlements. That's some pretty deep thinking. The philosophical wisdom of Chesterton was not so far away from another wise writer, Solomon, who dealt with the problem of pleasure, the problem of pain, and the paradox of all the good and bad experiences of life which we encounter, they seem, in Solomon's eyes, to bear traces of some purpose somewhere, indeed, some person who has ordered it all. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you would. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If I would have had more time, I would have had the worship team prepare that old bird's tune. Turn, turn, turn to play this morning. Because whenever I read Ecclesiastes 3, that's what I hear going on in my brain. There is an appointed time for everything, writes Solomon. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Life is an amazing thing, isn't it? The creator, the sustainer, the completer of life is an amazing being. Chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes in the first 11 verses stands, in my opinion, as the towering high point of this entire book. Far from implying that God set the world in motion and then backed off, when it's, while it cycles itself into infinity, the teacher here embraces the sovereignty of God over every event under heaven, good and bad alike, without apology. There is an appointed time, Solomon says, for everything. There is a time for every event under heaven. An appointed time. Every aspect of life is being masterfully woven into a beautiful tapestry, he says. And it may not look like it from our angle. 
but from God's perspective, who is looking at it from above the sun, it all makes sense to him. Birth, death, crying, laughter, seeking, losing, keeping, throwing away, tearing apart, joining together, love, hate, war, peace. They're all part of the beauty of God's plan and what he's creating. I have an old embroidered bookmark that someone once gave me, and the top side of it is intricately, intricately detailed and beautifully crafted. Yet if I turn it over, I discover the underside of this artwork is a chaotic mass of crisscrossing threads full of twists and knots, the colors having no rhyme or reason. This bookmark, whenever I pick it up, is a vivid reminder to me that Jesus Christ, God, has ordained everything in my life to somehow create a beautiful picture in the end, regardless of how it looks to me. From the underside, it makes no sense, this bookmark. It has no pattern, fills no apparent purpose. But by looking at it from the angle at which it was intended to be viewed, the artist's view, we discover beauty and experience great satisfaction in it. Life, says this text, is no different from that bookmark. There is a great comfort in knowing that the one who is creating the artwork knows exactly what he's doing. Amen? In other words, God's sovereignty should lead us personally into great security. Great security. Does it lead you there? Verses 1 to 8 have the fingerprint of God's sovereignty all over them. Life, Solomon says, is full of contrasts. In fact, here's a big cross-section. Fourteen pairs of life's most perplexing and contrasting elements. They all have an important place and an appropriate time in the course of this world. There isn't even a question in his mind about it. If you're going to experience some security and enjoy this life, the first order of business, says Solomon, is this. You need to accept the facts about God's sovereignty. You need to accept the facts about God's sovereignty. First eight verses here. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. A time to search and a time to give up as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. See, life is not a random set of occurrences. According to this text, everything that we experience has its appointed time and everything it's appropriate in its time. You know what? Solomon doesn't argue the issue, or even discuss the issue here. He simply states the facts. 
There is no controversy in his mind. For example, number one, God is sovereign over matters of life and death, verses two and three. He's sovereign over matters of life and death. Birthing and dying is the first thing he deals with. These are the boundary lines of life under the sun, and we do not set them. Is that right? Interestingly, this scripture was read at John F. Kennedy's funeral service, and it was said to be one of his favorite passages of scriptures, of the scriptures. It's one of mine as well. I often use it in funerals because I believe it clarifies how appropriately small we really are in relation to the two most defining moments in our lives, birth and death. In the postmodern world, however, we think and operate as though we were in control of those two dates, birthing and dying. Controversy surrounding issues of abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, physician-assisted suicide, surrogate motherhood, artificial insemination, living wills, medical life support technology, laboratory cloning. All of these topics lull us into assuming that we are in control of it all. How deceived we are. We're not in control of any of it. We arrogantly and foolishly believe that we can generate life and we can cheat somehow death. But the truth of the matter is that life and death are still in the hands of Almighty God. Always have been, always will be. Let me say this. No one lives without His sovereign permission. No one dies short of His authoritative decree. Let me say that again. No one lives without his sovereign permission and no one dies short of his authoritative decree. He alone opens wombs. Genesis 29, 31. Psalm 113, 9. They say that. He alone closes the door of life. He creates the umbilical cord and he cuts the silver cord. You didn't ask to be born. You had absolutely no say in the matter. It was done apart from your will. Your last day on earth will not be determined by you either, believe it or not. If you decided to end your life today, it could not happen short of God's sovereign allowance. It wouldn't happen. God has already set the day of your death just like he did the day of your birth. That's a little unnerving when you hear it put that way, isn't it? It can also give us great confidence, though, in living for Jesus Christ. The powerful preacher George Whitfield was known to say this, quote, I cannot die until my work is done, unquote. And he was absolutely right. Birth and death are not human accidents, says Warren Wiersbe. They are divine appointments. Psalm 139. Turn there, if you would. You know this passage of Scripture, yet it's always good to review it and remind ourselves of where we are in this world. Psalm 139, verse 5 says, David writes, speaking to God, you have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now skip down to verse 16. Verse 16. 
Your eyes have seen my unformed substance in the womb. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not even one of them. Birthing and dying, they're all under God's sovereign control. Planting and uprooting, back in Ecclesiastes again. Second part of verse 2, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that you don't plant corn in winter. Right? I'm no farmer, but boy, really. There is a time to plant, right? There's a time to plant. There is also a time to uproot, a time to harvest, a time to prune. The same is true in our spiritual lives. There are seasons of intense spiritual growth that we go through when we produce much fruit if we're following Christ. Yet there are times when we experience God's pruning, aren't there? His discipline. And for those steeped in sin, maybe even His uprooting. John chapter 15 and verse 2, Jesus said these words. He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. It could also be translated cleans. So that it may bear more fruit. God called the prophet Jeremiah to a ministry of both planting and uprooting in his life. He literally called him from the womb to prophesy of God's direct involvement in uprooting the nation as well as replanting it. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 1 for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Look at verse 10. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to tear down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Chapter 31 of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Again, God's sovereign. There is a time to build. There is a time to plant. There is a time to uproot. There is a time to harvest. It is entirely his prerogative to initiate times of planting and uprooting on any nation, any nation, mind you, including our own. Jeremiah, again, chapter 18 and verse 5. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. 
If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. God is sovereign over all of it. There is a time to plant and a time to uproot. And God declares and decrees both. Secondly, Solomon deals with the issue that he's sovereign over matters of destruction and rejuvenation in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. Killing and healing. These words do not sit well with us. But as Chuck Swindoll rightly observes, life seems somewhere strangely fixed between the battlefield and the first aid station, between murder and medicine. And he's right. So what, what is advoca- what's Solomon advocating for here? Is he advocating for killing? I believe he's just stating the reality of the situation. In a world full of sinful as well as righteous people, there will be both consequences and concessions, killing and healing. The Hebrew word for kill here carries the idea of judicial execution. The judgment of God is painfully real throughout all of Scripture and in life. He acts and who can question him? In Genesis 9-6, he instituted his criteria for capital punishment. In Genesis 18 and 19, he destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah along with its people because of their horrific decadence. Achan and his family lost their lives as an immediate judgment upon sin. Even in the New Testament, God sometimes judged sin through sickness and physical death. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, Paul talks about people who don't judge the body rightly in the communion service, and some of them are sick and some of them sleep, meaning death. Yet only God can justly decree death and destruction because only God is holy. And at the same time, God sovereignly heals individuals and entire nations when they respond in repentance. And by the brutal killing of Christ as a sacrifice for our sins, we are healed through faith in Him. There is a time to kill, the Bible says, and a time to heal in God's sovereign order, and it is He who decrees both of them. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 29, uh, 39 says this, See now that I am he and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Solomon goes on to talk about the fact that in life there is a time for tearing down and building up. Just think of all the road construction that's just getting underway around here on the highways, every place you want to travel. Or the recent building project here at the church. 
or even renovations in your own home that you may be doing this summer. Demolition crews are followed by construction crews. Happens all through life. This, Solomon uses a military term here also, describing what the Babylonians did to the walls of Jerusalem. But God ordered that destruction for the purpose of getting his people to a place where they could be rebuilt spiritually. He had to tear them down in order to build them up. And sometimes God has to tear us down before he can spiritually build us up into a new creation. So let me ask you, are you experiencing a little demolition going on in your life? Possibly. Are parts of your life being torn down, torn apart? You see, God may not be actively doing it, but in His sovereign plan, He has a plan to rebuild it if you're His. Just as He did for Israel, Jeremiah 29, 11, that very, very familiar verse, His plans for Israel after the Babylonian captivity. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. They're not plans for calamity. They're plans for good to give you a future and a hope. Isaiah 61, verse 4, promises they will build, rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. He is sovereign over matters of destruction and rejuvenation. But he's also sovereign over matters of sorrow and celebration. Look at verse 4. Solomon says there is a time to weep and a time to laugh time to mourn and a time to dance. Weeping and laughter, mourning and dancing. C.S. Lewis saw pain as God's megaphone. You know the quote, right? He said that he whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pains. He also said that his favorite sound in all of the earth, C.S. Lewis did, was the sound of hearty male laughter. I have been to wakes where I have stood beside family members who were weeping in their sorrow and not five minutes later were laughing from their soul. You experienced that? Were they being irreverent? Uncaring? Disrespectful? Hardly. They were celebrating two very different but very real aspects of life. Good times and bad, hope and sadness, joy and sorrow, yesterday and tomorrow, all rolled into one. People laugh at funerals and cry at weddings. They do it all the time. I've mourned over some people's lives as they turn away from the truth and rejoiced in another's death because they were going into the presence of the truth. And by the way, all you diehard Baptists out there, Solomon says, there is a time to dance. There is, it's biblical. God has ordained seasons of sorrow and celebration, both. And verse 5 says, he's sovereign over matters of love and loss. A time to throw stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to shun embracing. There are times when we need to embrace friends and times when we need to hold them at a distance. There are times when embracing is appropriate, and there are times when it is not. He goes on to say that God is sovereign over matters of holding on and letting go. In verse 6, a time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. 
I like that one. Time to keep and a time to throw away. Garage sales, yard sales, rummage sales, they're all biblical. <laughs> time to throw away. That's what my wife tells me all the time. And verse 7 says he is sovereign over matters of the heart. Look at verse 7. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. Tearing apart likely refers to the act of rending one's garments in front of the breast as an act of grievous affliction, bearing the sorrow of the heart. That's the picture here. There is a time for rending of relationships, yet there is also a time for reconciling those relationships. There is a time when resentment must give way to restoration. He's sovereign over matters of the heart. He's also sovereign over matters of the mouth. Verse 7, a time to be silent and a time to speak. There are times when we should speak up and there are times when we should shut up. It's not always appropriate to blurt out a Bible verse in any given situation. Be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, says James, the Lord's brother. W. Ian Thomas, I love some of his writings, He said it better than anyone I know. He said this years and years ago. He said, make sure it's God's trumpet you're blowing. If it's only yours, you won't wake the dead. You'll just annoy the neighbors. (laughs) Good counsel. And he is sovereign over matters of truth in verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Love, hate, war, peace. Another pair of contrasts that makes us squirm in our seats. Love's no problem, right? Peace, we can fathom that. But is there really a divinely approved kind of hate? Is there such a thing as a just war? I agree with the idea that acts of injustice, prejudice, terrorism, and blatant disregard for the dignity of human life ought to be hated and withstood The early church father, Jerome, said, we cannot love good if we do not hate evil. In God's sovereign design, there is a time, I believe, for hate. Psalm 119 in verse 104 says this, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Verse 113 of the same psalm. I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. In 163, the psalmist cries out, I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. You see, David, exhibiting the heart of true devotion here, gives what I would describe as God's design for perfect hatred. Actually, it's in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. 
His imprecatory appeal here is not from selfishness, it's not from personal vengeance, but in zeal for the Lord's righteousness and in abhorrence for sin, which God himself hates. The integrity of David's request here is put to the ultimate test. Because in abject humility and to be sure of his own motive behind this prayer, David invites God's penetrating scrutiny of his own heart and mind in the matter in order that anything impure in him might be rooted out. Look at verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and then lead me in the everlasting way. That's the description of the kind of hatred that God approves of. And David invites the scrutiny. And then Solomon says there's also a time for war. Now, I do not claim to have all the answers for when it should or should not occur or how it should be fought, but I believe, according to the Scriptures, there is such a thing as a just war. The Scriptures teach that God has established the authority of government on the basis of righteousness as a minister for good. He has also bestowed it on, the, on it the power of the sword as an avenger of evil. You can read it in Romans 13, Proverbs 16. Now, having said that, I also believe, given the depravity of humanity, that as nations go to war, even when so-called justified, sin is always present. It's always part of the equation. Motives are questionable. But as one man has said, better days are coming. Amen? In the last days, God's kingdom will finally be established on the earth and the nations will be at peace. The law of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem and the Lord Jesus himself will settle the disputes that today end in war. So wise will be his rule that weapons of war will become obsolete they won't be needed in the kingdom that Jesus establishes. There's a time for war and a time for peace. But in all these seasons that Solomon talks about here, how often do you and I get it right? How often do we get it right? How often do we attempt to do the right thing at the wrong time? You see, in order to experience some security in this life, we must accept the facts of God's sovereignty. But to go further, we need to acknowledge the frustration of our own inability. And that's in verse 9. So we begin to wrap this up here. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? What's the profit in it all? The question sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because Solomon said it a number of times in this book so far, in chapter 1, verse 3, and in chapter 2, verse 11. What's the prophet? Chuck Swindoll once told of a photograph he saw that pictured a yellow street sign reading, Dead End. Someone added two words with a can of black spray paint to the sign. What isn't? Right? That pretty much sums up what Solomon's saying. When you slice life under the sun down the middle, there's a net gain of nothing, Solomon seems to say. One author says, Solomon gave us a long list of opposites. Fourteen are positive. Fourteen are negative. In some ways, they seem to cancel out each other so that the net result is zero. Many of these tensions leave me on a dead-end street. So what is the profit? 
Again, on a horizontal plane, the journey from birth to death without God amounts to absolutely nothing. Zero gain. So Solomon quickly moves to the heart of the matter, and I'm convinced the question in in verse 9 here is meant to be rhetorical. He's setting us up for the slam dunk, basically. In order to have some security in life, find some reason to endure, enjoy in the journey, God must definitely be part of the equation. In fact, He's the sum of it all. Our security comes when we accept the facts of God's sovereignty, acknowledge the frustration of our own inability, and thirdly, we must affirm our faith in the midst of uncertainty. Verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time, in verse 11. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Interesting here in verse 11, the word appropriate literally means beautiful. Some of your translations may even say that, translate it that way. So God has made everything beautiful in its time. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 12 to describe Abram's wife, Sarah, whom if you read that text, you'll find out how beautiful she was. She was stunningly beautiful. Everywhere she went, says author Ken Geyer, heads turned. God's purpose, he says, is to make us beautiful. How beautiful? Stunningly beautiful, spiritually. As beautiful as his son, Jesus, in all his glory. And the classic verse, Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that God causes everything to work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. He has made everything, Solomon says, beautiful in its time. When God takes over your life, beauty emerges. Let not the weakness of the flesh distract your eyes from the splendor of his beauty, wrote Augustine. There is so much ugliness to distract us in this world, isn't there? When the pieces of our lives don't fit, we do not readily see the beauty that God is crafting, do we? And you may be asking God, what in the world good, how beautiful is a terminal illness? In what way can my child's death be a beauty to me? How can the loss of my 30-year career be profitable? Friends, I'm not trying to give you romantic ideas about your pain or easy pat answers because all this stuff is very scary. Even though I know God is good, it scares me to death to think that in order to get to the point that He wants me to be at, in order to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, I might have to endure some serious, serious suffering, and you might too. 
But the point is, is that we never know how our pain is good for us at the moment we're in it. But when we choose to believe God and trust Him through it, it will become clear in the end. The ultimate example is the cross of Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus knew of the eternal good it would bring, he still trembled, he still agonized, he sweat blood over it. So when you and I are tempted to cry out, why this, why now, what for, what next, what gives? Remember that our anchor must be that God is good all the time. Even though our circumstances are not good much of the time. The challenge is to stop trying to change what God is doing and instead start allowing God to change us. Because as I've said so many times before, God has no process without good as his purpose. God has a plan. He holds the power. He has a process. Romans 8.28 says that behind the scenes of our life story is the sovereign hand of God weaving that tapestry. He's putting the pieces of the puzzle together and it's going to be something incredibly, stunningly beautiful and good when it's all said and done. And the word Paul used in Romans 8, believe it or not, means, it's the answer to Solomon's question, it means profitable. The word good in Romans 8.28 literally means profitable, beneficial. One of the starkest illustrations of this scenario that I want to close with today is the contrast between the life of Solomon and the life of his father David. In his fabulous book, The Weathering Grace of God, Ken Geyer makes a stunning comparison. Let me wrap it all up with a few excerpts. He says, Solomon's life was smooth and predictable. David's life was rigid with upheavals. The epitaph of David's life was that he was a man of, after God's own heart, Right? The epitaph of Solomon's life, however, was that his heart was not totally devoted to the Lord his God, as his father David's had been. What a stark contrast to those two. Which makes me wonder, how would I want my obituary to read? What would I want chiseled into my tombstone? How would I want to be remembered? I would want to be remembered the way David was remembered. So would you, right? He was a man or a woman after God's own heart. But then, of course, who of us wouldn't want to be remembered that way, right? But then who of us would want the life that led to that epitaph? I want David's epitaph, but I want Solomon's life. Isn't that the way we operate? That's the rub. Upheavals, three of the peaks that stand out on the horizon of biblical history for David. It's his relationship with Saul, his relationship with Absalom, and his relationship with Bathsheba. His relationship with Saul was an upheaval he was in no way responsible for. Not much is revealed about David's relationship with Absalom. Most of the failure in the relationship can be placed squarely on Absalom's shoulders, but maybe David shared some of it. But David's relationship with Bathsheba, however, was all his doing. Of all the upheavals in David's life, this was Pike's Peak. 
This was the one failure that would dominate the landscape of his life. It would be named. It would be seen by everyone throughout history and remembered by everyone down to today forever. Now, if God truly makes everything beautiful in its time, what possible beauty could he bring from that? Through the union of David and Bathsheba came the Savior of the world. For all the consequences of David's sin that we could name, could any of us have ever, ever named that one? In our wildest imagination, who of us could have foreseen such beauty coming from such ugliness? Only God. And you know what the word for that is? Grace. It's who God is. It's what God does. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Everything. He may take a lifetime to do it. He may take a lineage of lifetimes to do it. But in its time, He makes everything beautiful. Even the ugliest of David's sins. Even the ugliest of yours. For we are saved by grace. Right? And that not of ourselves. We're saved by, by grace through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Paul goes on to say we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And we want to do the works that he's prepared beforehand for us. Friends, we will never understand the full thrust of all the events of our lives, good or bad, until the end. God did that on purpose, Solomon said here in chapter 3 at the end, in verse 11, so that we will not be able to find out the work which God has done from the beginning. The Apostle Paul said it this way, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. One day, when we have a perspective from above the sun, not under the sun, we will not be limited by this life and we will have the answers in full because we will know in full as we have been fully known. The sovereignty of God should lead us to the security, our security in life. Should lead us to great security in life. And security in life culminates in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. There it is. The gift of eternal life. So take God's gift while you still have the time. Along with Solomon's list of contrasts, there is still one more worth considering today. There is a time to reject and a time to accept. Make this your time to accept the promise of Christ.